Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Back and take a seat. Again, if you don't have a Bible, you will need a Bible. And there are red Bibles in the back. You can pick one up. And if you pick up a Bible, we will be on page 413 in the Red Bible. You can open your Bibles to Esther chapter 7. Esther chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 1 through chapter 8, verse 2. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for this gathering back together of the saints. It's so good to see more faces, to worship together, to enjoy you, to hear from you. And so God, pray now that you would bless the preaching of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start with a little survey. Uh, If you could raise your hand if you feel like this year you have watched the news less than you did last year. I'm just curious, how many of you have been like kind of giving up on the news? Okay, some of you have. I know I have. I know I just kind of quit watching the news. And the reason is because the news has become so extremely depressing. I I mean, when I watch the news, it just seems like evil is winning, that, that the world is just hurling towards just complete destruction. You watch the news and you hear stories of people being beaten and killed, of violent riots going on, of businesses going under, of people sick and dying, of racial tensions boiling over, of hospitals being at near capacities. And if that wasn't bad enough, there are now political ads everywhere trying to convince us how evil the other politicians are. As a coping mechanism, I and some of you have kind of taken the ostrich approach. Let's just put our head in the sand and pretend like none of it's going on. But the problem is, it is going on. Evil is running rampant throughout the world. And it's overwhelming. It's heavy. It feels like there's nothing we can do, doesn't it? There's a band called Dead Lord, um, not a Christian band. Uh, Dead, D-E-A-D, Lord, my wife's favorite band. Just kidding, it's not. Um, And... uh, They have a song, and in the chorus it says, Time to look the other way. Save your battle for a rainy day. Better surrender as the madness begins. Join the offender, because evil, evil always wins. Evil always wins. Doesn't it feel like that at times? Like evil is always winning? In the book of Esther, we see evil personified in a man named Haman. He, like Satan, is the arch enemy of the people of God, the Jews. 
and he has made an edict that all of the Jews would be annihilated throughout the entire kingdom about a year after the edict is given. And so it appears that evil has won the day or is winning the day. On a smaller scale, Haman has often also come after Mordecai the Jew who refuses to bow to him. He has built a 75-foot gallow not only to hang Mordecai, but also to embarrass him in front of the whole city. In the book of Esther, evil is winning. And the question is, will God intervene? Or as the songs say, should we join the offender because evil always wins? In today's passage, what we will see is that God does not take the ostrich approach to evil. Rather, God, who is good and knows all the evil in the entire world, engages, incarnates into evil to oppose evil and to overcome evil. Let's take a look. First, we see in this passage that God exposes evil. Look at verse 1 and 2 with me. So, so the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. If you remember a couple chapters ago, Esther finds out that there is this edict to, to eliminate the Jews. And so she comes before the king at threat of her own life. He extends the scepter to her and he asks her, what do you want? Why are you risking your life? And she says, would you come to a feast that I have prepared? You and Haman, your right-hand man, tomorrow. So they come to the feast. They go through this amazing feast, and, and again, he asks, what is it that, what's your request? What is your wish, Esther? And she says, come to a second feast. And so now we are at the second feast. The feast is wrapping up, and he is just waiting to find out, what is it that my queen wants? What is it that she would risk her life for? What is it that she would make these great banquets for me and for Haman? What is it that she wants? And so he is on the edge of his seat saying, what is it? What is it that you want? Verse 3, then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. The king asked, What is your wish? What is your request? And she says, Her wish is that her life might be saved, and her request is that her people be saved. This is the first time in the book of Esther that we see Esther publicly identifying herself with the people of God, the Jews. This is a major step in maturity for Esther, a gift of God's grace in which she is not ashamed of who she is or whom she belongs to. Verse four, for we have been sold, I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. It's interesting here, she says that we have been sold, and this is important for what's coming next. What does she mean that the Jews have been sold? Well, if you remember way back when, 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 uh, when Haman comes to the king to ask for the signet ring to wipe out a people group who he doesn't identify, uh, he promises the king 10,000 talents. And if you remember, at that time, the king said, you can keep your money. 
And we said that that, that was merely a, a cultural formality, kind of a nicety to say those things. He didn't really mean keep your money, but that's kind of what you say at the time. And he was, of course, going to pay him the money. And so Esther is saying, listen, someone is paying for my people to be killed, to be annihilated. This is the interest of the king to fill his treasury. And so Esther knows his hunger for wealth and she uses it to her advantage. It continues and says, if we have been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. Now that's a very confusing verse. And so let me just translate it for you a little bit. Esther is basically saying, listen, if my people were simply sold as slaves, I would not have bothered you because you would have profited from that. Because of their work would have spurred the economy, would have brought in more taxes and revenues, and I wouldn't have bothered you for that. But this edict that my people would be annihilated will hurt you financially. You will have less of a tax base if these people are wiped out. And so she's appealing to his greed. Pastor David Emke a few weeks ago pointed out that Esther is not only courageous, she is cunning. She is appealing to his longing for riches. Verse 5, then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe, an enemy. This wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. For he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. You know, for so long the Jews had been terrified of Haman because he had this edict for them to be annihilated. But now we see the tables turn. And Haman is terrified of the Jews, especially this one Jewish, Esther, the queen. And the reason why he is so afraid is because he has been found out. Because his heart and his actions have been publicly revealed. Haman was afraid because God was exposing Haman's evil. This is God's first step in a battle against evil. God exposes the evil. It may not be in the time that we want. Evil may go on for a while, but eventually God will always expose evil and the evildoer. We see this all the way back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned against God. What did God do? God did not take the ostrich approach and stay far away, but God came into the garden to expose the evil. Looking at our nation's history, we can see how God has exposed evil throughout our history. We look at how the U.S. government treated Native Americans to ship them on to make room for the settlers. And yet now we look back and we say that is evil because God has exposed the evil. Slavery was woven into the fabric of our society. It was commonplace. It was unquestioned in many parts of America. And yet over the centuries, what has God done? God has exposed the evil of slavery. If you want modern day examples, you can see how evil is being exposed in the actions of 
people like Larry Nasser and Jerry Sandusky and Harvey Weinstein and Boy Scouts and even in clergy. These are people who thought they could hide their evil. And they did for a time. But then through brave women and men, God exposed their evil. Or you can consider the death of George Floyd. I have not talked to anyone, even my police officer friends, who do not think what happened there was extremely evil. And yet, why was the video taken? Why was the video put on the internet for all to see? It's because God is in the business of exposing evil. I'll be honest with you. I praise God that these evils have been exposed. I I praise God that people in power in Hollywood and in sports and in the church and in law enforcement are being scrutinized more closely, that they're not being trusted so much. This is a good thing because God has been exposing evil. God is at work for the vulnerable. As I think about God exposing the evil, it gives me hope for the future of our current cultural evils. You know, if God was able to expose the evil of slavery, which again was so deeply entrenched in the fabric of America, who is it to say that God could not expose the evil of abortion? Who knows, maybe a hundred years from now, the the consensus of, of the culture of America look back to our day and say, can you believe they did that? Because our God exposes Evil, not always in the time that we want, but God always exposes evil. While we may cringe at watching the nightly news, could it be evidence that God does not take the ostrich approach? Could it be evidence that God is laying bare the evil, that God is exposing the evil to the broader world? God is continuously often through human agents exposing evil. But he doesn't stop there because if God simply exposed the evil, that would just be (laughs) awful, right? It would be defeating. It would be so depressing. It would be over. If that's all God did, if all God did was expose the evil, we would have no hope. But God does more than expose the evil. God, in his loving grace, punishes evil. Look at verse seven with me again. It says, And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. You know, it's evident to Haman that the king is very, very angry. And the king is angry for probably multiple reasons. One reason, of course, is because he had been duped by Haman. He gave Haman his signet ring to go ahead and genocide a people that was unbeknownst to him, who that people was. And Haman foolishly and recklessly sends out this edict, which is irrevocable. And so that king is angry against Haman because part of that people group is his queen. He's already lost one queen. He doesn't want to lose another. Secondly, I think the king's also mad at himself. I mean, how Silly and foolish is it for him to give that signet ring and let Haman do with it whatever he wants with no questions asked. It's a, it's a dumb move to make. But the third thing, and I think this is so important, is that the king is angry at the situation. You see, the, the king is righteously angry at Haman. But the king really can't do anything about it because Haman didn't violate any laws. 
Haman had permission to use the king's signet ring to make this edict. And so, so the, here's the king. He's in this conundrum. He has righteous anger towards Haman, who has issued this edict to annihilate this people, which includes the queen, and yet he can do nothing about it. And so will the evil go unpunished? We read on. Verse 8. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Commentator Karen Job says this about this passage. She says, Harem Protocol dictated that no one but the king could be left alone with a woman of the harem. Haman should have left Esther's presence when the king retreated to the garden. Even in the presence of others, a man was not to approach a woman of the king's harem within seven steps. That Haman should actually fall on the couch where Esther is reclining is unthinkable. Precisely at this moment of impropriety, Xerxes returns and finds his quandary about what to do with Haman resolved. Regardless of intent, Haman has undeniably violated harem protocol, a serious affront to the king himself, and reason enough to condemn him to death. You see, Haman solved the king's problem. <laughs> when the king comes back and he sees Haman assaulting the queen, at least that's what it appeared, but he was violating the protocols of the kingdom. As, as, as the king is declaring his repulsion at this, you see the servants of the king know exactly what to do. They put the bag over, the king, over Haman's head and leads him away. Covering his face was a sign of his destination, which was execution. You've all seen it in the movies. Probably when someone's awaiting execution, they put a bag over the head right before they are about to be executed. That's what we are learning in this passage, that God is going to punish the evil of Haman. He's going to make sure that it will happen. Haman is going to die. Now, how is this going to happen? Here we're introduced to a man who I don't think is mentioned any place other in scripture. His name is Harbona. And I kind of imagine him as like this Disney character just kind of popping his head out saying, oh king, by the way, just in case you didn't know. Okay, so look with me, verse nine. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs and attendants of the king said, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. How convenient, huh? You know, it's so interesting. I didn't think about this before, but one commentator pointed out that at this moment in time, Esther probably had no idea about the plot against Mordecai. Uh, the king may not have even known, but here it is revealed that Haman had this plot against Mordecai to hang Mordecai. And in a stroke of ironic justice, we read, we go on read, and it says, and the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. The irony of Haman's final days is overwhelming. Haman built these gallows to kill and humiliate Mordecai the Jew, and yet God had reversed that and used those same gallows 
to execute and humiliate the enemy of the Jews. God punishes evil. And make no mistake, God's punishment of evil is never unjust. It is always supremely just. It is pure justice. God always, always exposes evil, and God always, always punishes evil. Now, you may be there saying, well, what about those people who got away with the crime? I know many of your stories, and so some of you might be there thinking, what about that man who assaulted my daughter or my wife who disappeared and the authorities have never found? What about the woman who destroyed my life through gossip and slander? What about the evil dictators who genocide thousands of people and lived a long life? God always exposes evil. God always punishes evil. But it may not be in our timeline. Evil never escapes God. Evil never wins a day. Evil is always punished. Proverbs eleven twenty one 21 says it this way. Be assured, an evil person will not go unpunished. Romans 12, 9 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That is a promise from God. Now, we certainly need to pursue justice, but we don't need to be consumed with vengeance towards those who have done evil against us or a loved one because we are assured of this promise that vengeance will be had, that the Lord will punish evil. You see, everybody is going to have to answer to a king one day. Everyone's gonna have to answer to the King Jesus when he returns and he will expose all the evil and he will punish all the evil. We read of this coming day in the book of Revelations. Revelation 21, eight says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. God exposes evil. God punishes evil. But what is so wonderful is that God also reverses evil. You know, what was Haman's evil intent? To kill the Jews and pillage the Jews. But here we see God reverse that evil in a way only God can do. Chapter 8, verse 1 and 2 says, on that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. Finally, Esther fully revealing her identity, who Mordecai was, her cousin that raised her. Verse 2, and the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Haman was, again, the second most powerful man in the empire, maybe in the entire world. And so certainly he had a large house with an abundance of riches. And now this wealth is given to Mordecai. What a great reversal of evil. Furthermore, the signet ring of the king, which was given to Haman, which wielded great power in the hands of Haman for evil, is now given to Mordecai to wield great power of the reversal of evil, as we will see in the next chapter. But that's not all that we see here. 
The king's giving of the signet ring indicates that Mordecai is given Haman's position in the kingdom as the second most powerful man in the empire. In fact, if you look down just a little bit at verse 15 in Esther chapter 8, we read about this. It says, Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. Here's the thing. This isn't Burger King. Not everybody gets a golden crown, all right? The golden crowns are reserved for those who are royalty in the kingdom. And this, this, this crown of gold is given to Mordecai. What a great reversal from one who is going to be killed, who is marginalized, to now being the second most powerful person in the kingdom. Like making a river flow in the opposite direction. God miraculously reverses evil. And we see in his timing, sometimes through human agents, again, that God exposes evil, that God punishes evil. But then God in his greatness also reverses evil. Friends, as we consider these amazing truths about God, about his knowledge of evil and vengeance towards evil, it should not only lead us to treasure God and to delight in God and to hope in God, but it should also lead us to be terrified of God. See, if we are honest, all of us know that we don't have to watch the nightly news to see evil. We don't even have to look out our door to see evil. We don't even have to look past our own skin. You know, I know many times we think, you know, I'm a pretty good person. Let's look at what Jesus' assessment of you is, okay? Matthew chapter 15, verse 19. This is what Jesus says about you. He says, for out of the heart, that is your heart, comes evil. Out of your heart comes evil. Thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Listen, the evil you do in secret, the evil you think up in your mind, the evil you cherish in your heart is an evil that you might be able to hide from the people sitting next to you. But you cannot hide it from God. Because God exposes all evil and because God punishes all evil. This is a terrifying thought. We stand condemned. But remember the good news that God not only exposes evil and punishes evil, but God also reverses evil. And how did God reverse evil? On the most evil day in human history. On the most evil sign in human history. At the cross of Christ. God piled our evil upon Jesus for those who trust him. Our evil, our past evil, our present evil, our future evil, all of our evil was piled upon Jesus. And God looked upon that evil, completely exposed, and he punished the evil fully and completely so that he could reverse the evil in our own life. God exposes all evil. He punishes all evil, but he has the power to reverse evil. And we see it not only at the cross of Christ, but we will also see this on the final day. You see, this is a grand story. Again, Genesis chapter three, God exposes the evil. Throughout the Bible, God is punishing evil. He is disciplining evil. But then we get to the final two chapters of the Bible and we see God's complete reversal of evil. In Revelation chapter one, Chapter 21, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, 
For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and the sea, which represents chaos and evil and wickedness, was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things. All of the evil things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Our God does not run from evil. He exposes evil. He punishes evil. And in the end, he will reverse all the evil in the world. Come, Lord Jesus, huh? Let me end with this. Um, I was sitting with a friend recently, a, a brother in Christ, and he was telling me about his time in prison. He had been in prison for 10 years, and uh, it's, it's, it's not like uh, uh, going to a camp. <laughs> it's pretty awful. It was more awful than I thought it was. A lot of subhuman living conditions that they were in. I asked him how the food was. He's like, oh, the food is awful. It's so bad. And so he was telling me about his time in prison, kind of walking me through from him going in to him coming out and all of those things. And what was so cool about his story is that he was so very clear how thankful he was that he went to prison. Because he knew that's exactly, he knew that God knew that's exactly what he needed. And so he was so glad that his evil was exposed. I mean, he was so glad that his evil was being punished in prison because in his heart, God was reversing the evil. He turned someone who was condemned for hell to be a citizen of heaven. Someone transformed by the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Someone who knows the king of kings and loves the kings of kings and is delighted by the king of kings. You see, God does this on a major scale throughout human history, but he does this in our hearts. He exposes our evil. He punishes us, our evil with fatherly discipline because he is seeking to reverse the evil that is in your hearts. You know, at the beginning, I quoted from that band, Dead Lord. And uh, if you remember the chorus, it said, join the offender because evil, evil always wins. Well, they're right in this regard. If the Lord is dead, evil will win. But we don't have a dead Lord. <laughs> we have a resurrected Lord. We have a living Lord who is coming back to judge the living and the dead where evil will be put to an end. And so as you see evil out there, as you wrestle with the evil inside your own heart, remember we have a God who has made this great promise to his people who live in an evil world that through our resurrected living Lord Jesus Christ, God will certainly expose all evil. He will punish all evil, but God will also reverse all evil for his people. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much that you didn't look upon the evil of this world and go running the other direction. That's what I would have done. I would have said, forget them. Who cares about them? I'm gonna go my own way. But you didn't do that because you love us 
and you care for us and you stepped into the evil in your son, Jesus Christ, and you took on our evil and you paid for our evil. And God, we praise you for that, Lord. Thank you that you are reversing the evil in our hearts and in our lives, Lord. Slowly but surely you are doing so. And we long for that day where there will be no more evil at all, either in the world or in our soul. And so God, we long for that day. Help us to hope in that day. Help us to engage into the evil of this world to help reverse the evil through the power of your gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.